Acts chapter 18, and this morning we'll be looking at the first 17 verses. This is God's word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from his tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio played no attention to any of this. About 50 years ago, there was a war between Indonesia and Malaysia. And since Malaysia was a territory that was overseen by Great Britain, the British sent troops to support the Malaysians in their war against the Indonesians. And during that war, the British officers became very impressed with a tribe of people from uh, Nepal called Gurkhas. And Gurkhas soldiers had developed this reputation for being fierce and very courageous in battle, some of their best fighters. And so one day the British officers went to the leaders of the Gurkhas tribe and asked if their soldiers would be willing to jump from some transport planes into the jungle to engage the Indonesians in battle, even though the Gurkhas had never been trained as paratroopers. Well, to the surprise of the British officers, the Gurkhas reluctantly refused their offer. But then the next day, the leaders of the Gurkhas soldiers came back to the British officers and said that overnight they had talked to the other soldiers and they had decided that that they would be willing to jump under certain conditions. And so the British officers said, well, okay, what what conditions? 
Well, they said, well, first of all, they would like for the landing place to be a marsh or someplace soft that they could land with no big rocks that they'd have to worry about. And they said, okay, we, we, could, we can handle that. Well, what's your other condition? They said, well, the other condition is that the plane must fly as slowly and as low as possible, no more than 100 feet off the ground. And the British officers said, well, we'll tell our plane to fly as low and slowly as possible, but 100 feet is not high enough for the parachutes to open up. And the Gurkhas officer said, oh, parachutes? You didn't mention parachutes. If we're going to get parachutes, we'll jump anywhere you want us to. We tend to associate courage with self-confidence. When you think of courageous people, people like William Wallace in Scotland or George Patton, you tend to think of people that are very self-confident, type A, take charge, leading men into battle because of their self-confidence. But when it comes to scripture, courage is not based in self-confidence. Courage is based in the resources that are available to you. Courage is based in the resources that are available to you. And a lot of times, a lack of courage in our life is due to the fact that we are unaware of the magnitude of the resources available to us. If, that is, if that's courage in terms of geopolitical warfare, just think how much more important that awareness of the resources available to us is important to the spiritual warfare that we engage in every day. We're going to be kicking off a series of sermons in 1 Corinthians in a couple of weeks, and we'll be spending most of our time this year on Sunday mornings looking at passages in 1 Corinthians. And so today I thought it'd be helpful for us to take some time to look at this passage in the book of Acts where Luke describes for us Paul's initial ministry in Corinth. And by looking at what happened to him in his time, he spent actually a year and a half, which is a long time for Paul, in Corinth. To look at that time he spent there help us to understand the city better, to understand the issues that the city had, the issues that the early church that Paul established there faced, and the kind of ministry that Paul had, the relationship that Paul had with the church and with the city. And I think that what we'll see, not just today, but in the weeks to come, months to come, is that there are a lot of similarities between the ministry context that Paul faced in Corinth and the ministry context that we face here thousands of years later, in State College, in America in particular. The biggest obstacle that we face as we do ministry, I mean, the instructions given to us are not that complicated, but the biggest obstacle that we face is fear. Fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of ridicule, fear of opposition, even fear of persecution. And so what is the source of our encouragement? What gives us courage as we face the difficulties in the world around us, in this community, the, the challenges that we face, and as we'll see in a moment, the hostility that inevitably comes to anyone who faithfully preaches and teaches the gospel? We're going to look at the perils of Paul in Corinth, which was a difficult ministry in a very difficult context. Corinth in the first century AD was a very important city in the Roman Empire. It was huge, very prosperous. It was a trade center, major trade center 
the capital of Achaia, it says in the text, which was actually a region that was in modern-day Greece. And one of the reasons that Corinth had more prominence and more wealth and prosperity and impact upon the Roman Empire than a lot of other major cities is because it actually was between two major ports. And so as a city with one major port, it's always going to be a place of great influence, but a city with two ports would have double that influence. And so you would have ships and goods and people coming through Corinth from places like Italy and Spain and Egypt and the rest of North Africa and Asia Minor, all the key places of what was then modern civilization had influences and people and products and everything coming through Corinth. What a great place to preach the gospel. Matter of fact, that's something that's really clear about Paul's philosophy of ministry and his mission strategy throughout his ministry is that he spent time and invested himself heavily in places where the gospel would have tremendous impact. He spent his most time of his time in places like Ephesus and Corinth because he knew that the gospel was spread quickly and impact many people from that important strategic beachhead for the kingdom. And so he did. He spent a year and a half in Corinth and invested himself deeply there, even though it was a very difficult place to do ministry. And as I said, we're going to see a lot of parallels, I think, in the weeks to come between Corinth and even a little town like State College. Because, as I've said many times, State College, for the size of a town that it is, has an inordinate influence upon the world because of the people that come through here, because of the type of people that are impacted while they're here, and the places and positions that they go to when they leave here. In many ways, as I look at the state of Pennsylvania and even at the country, there are a few places that have the kind of influence, especially in relation to the size of the population of the place that State College has. This is a key strategic beachhead for the kingdom of God. I keep stressing that because it's easy to lose sight of that. I mean, I think about where I came from in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a major city. Philadelphia has a big impact upon the country and upon the world in many different ways. But Philadelphia is a very big place with a whole lot of people. And I'm always, ever since we've moved here four years ago, I've been struck by how many times we go out to the grocery store, we go out to the first night celebration, and we go out to the drugstore. We always bump into people we know. I mean, a church this size has an inordinate impact upon a place that has inordinate impact upon the world because the town isn't that big. And we have such direct access to the university that has such a worldwide impact. I just want to keep underlining that. As I look at the place, as Corinth is being such a key place and Paul investing so much of his time and energy to ministry there, we need to see our place, our calling, our ministry context as being just as important in many of the similar ways. Morally speaking, and this is another place where you're going to see some real similarities, Corinth was a very dark, dark, ugly place. It was one of the darkest places in the empire, morally speaking. Matter of fact, what's interesting, in the first century, they had co- the, the, just an average person in, in the Roman Empire, they had coined the term to Corinthianize. To Corinthianize to a Roman, was, to a Roman, somebody in the Roman Empire, was to say 
somebody who has engaged themselves in morally objectionable, usually sexual behavior. Now, think about that. I'm not talking about in the eyes of the church. I'm talking about in the eyes of the typical Roman citizen in the first century to be offended by the practices, you know, to, to have that name attached to it, to Corinthianize is to become morally objectionable to a first century Roman was to be pretty bad. Not surprisingly, the Greek goddess that the Corinthians worshipped was Aphrodite. And she was the Greek goddess of love and sensual pleasure. And one of the major ways of worship, one of the means of grace, so to speak, in goddess worship in, in, in Corinth was to enter into sexual relationship with a temple prostitute. That's the kind of place we're talking about. And, you know, when I think about the places I've come from, State College is a pretty dark place in some many of the different corners of the community we live in where things happen that are shameful, even in the eyes of the broader American culture. And these are people we're trying to reach. Paul arrives in Corinth and immediately seeks out other believers, and he finds two Christians that we meet elsewhere in the book of Acts, Aquila and Priscilla. They had been driven out by persecution from, from Italy, and they had come to Corinth and established a business as tent makers. And so at, we don't know whether Paul found them because of the church or he found them because of, of uh, their shared business, because Paul was also a tent maker, so he lived with them. Here's a great example of that biblical hospitality we talked about the last few months. Paul came and stayed with and lived with Priscilla and Aquila and worked with them as a fellow tent maker. And in his spare time, he went over to the synagogue and began explaining to both Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles that were drawn to Jewish teaching, God-fearing Gentiles, he explained to them that Jesus was the Christ, or as it's put here, that the Christ was Jesus. And they spent his spare time doing that. What's interesting is it says in verse 5 that his associates from earlier ministry, Silas and Timothy, came after a short time. And it says from that point on, from the time that Silas and Timothy arrived, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching and teaching the gospel. Now, if you put together what we, what we would see later in 2 Corinthians, you'd find out that when, when Silas and Timothy arrived, they brought a monetary gift with them from the churches in Macedonia. And there you see that principle of those preaching the gospel, making their living from the gospel, because a gift from the other churches enabled Paul to stop spending his time making tents and began preaching and teaching the gospel full time. Well, when you start preaching and teaching the gospel full time, that also increases the opposition. And the text goes on to say that, that the Jewish leadership and the Jews in general opposed and reviled him. That's the normal pattern with Paul's ministry. That's the normal pattern with any gospel preaching, teaching ministry is that you face serious opposition. As Paul would later write to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 2, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? If you are clear in telling people the truth, you are going to find many, if not most, people opposing what you're teaching and trying to tell them. Christ draws some and repulses more. That's the pattern of the work of the kingdom that we're called to. 
Now, we do have to be very, very careful to not add unnecessary offense to the gospel by the way in which we communicate the truth. We need to be loving. We need to be gentle. We need to be winsome. We need to be patient. But we need to be telling the truth. And when we do it, and the more we do it, the more we're going to find opposition. And that's what happened with Paul, and that's what will happen with us as well. But I want to point out first Paul's boldness. Look at the courage of Paul in verse 6. In the face of this persistent, prolonged resistance and rejection to his message, it says, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. This is reminiscent of when Nehemiah confronted the Jewish leadership of his day because they were oppressing the poor. And it says in the text there in Nehemiah that he shook out the fold of his garment against them. He warned them that he had told them the truth, he had called them to repentance, and their refusal to do so left the only thing to await them was judgment from God. And that's what the shaking out of the folds of his garment meant. And so Paul repeats that process. It's actually very similar to what Jesus taught his disciples to do. In Matthew 10, he said, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust of your feet when you leave that house or town. We know that Paul took that to heart because back in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet when they left Antioch because their message had been rejected in Antioch. So not only metaphorically, but literally, they carried out Jesus' command as a sign against Antioch. And here, as a sign against the synagogue in Corinth, that they had rejected the truth of God. They had rejected the gospel message. It's a powerful, dramatic, even prophetic moment that Paul has. And to add to the drama of the moment, the leader, that says the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, leaves with Paul when he leaves the synagogue and stops his ministry in the synagogue. And they go next door to a house next door where there was a believer in Christ. And the church meets there, and Paul continues to lead them in the study of God's word with the willing. But I point out that great spiritual boldness and courage and victory just to point out the fact that look at what happens next. Isn't it so often the case that when you have a a spiritual victory, whether in communicating the truth to someone or overcoming a sin in your life, that that's when Satan often attacks and tries to either puff you up with pride or thoroughly discourage you? You think of of Elijah after he faced down the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and had that great victory and vindication of the glory of God and, and the message that he brought. Immediately when he faced opposition afterwards from the queen, he is driven into the wilderness and he, he get, wants to give up on life. He wants God to put him to death, saying, I've failed. I'm the only one who believes. It's so often the case And what happens here, from the way that that the Lord Jesus deals with Paul, you can see that he had one of those dark valleys, dark moments of the soul, of discouragement, a feeling of despair and inadequacy. You know, we tend to make Paul out to be some kind of spiritual superhero. You have this sense that Paul went to bed boldly proclaiming the gospel, woke up in the morning boldly proclaiming the gospel, walked down the street boldly proclaiming the gospel. He never had a moment of weakness. I'm so glad that Luke records this moment this very tender moment of encouragement that Jesus gives to his apostle because Paul was not a spiritual superhero Paul was a frail sinner like you and me and God used him in great ways you see the problem of thinking that you're not a spiritual superhero then you lower your expectations of what God can do in you and through you 
So Paul then gets, the fear of Paul gets addressed as the passage goes on. Jesus gives him three commands. Basically, it's two commands. One command stated, one command, the second command stated positively and then negatively. He says, do not be afraid, go on speaking, and do not be silent. Later, Paul would write to the same Corinthian church. He would write to them in 1 Corinthians 2. He'd say, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. See, that's more the way we feel every day, isn't it? Weakness and fear and trembling. You see, we need encouragement every day, just like Paul did. Paul's ministry was not characterized by some superhuman, self-confident courage and boldness. He said, you saw in me that I was weak and trembling and and, in fear, and yet Christ overcame that. And that's what he's doing here. He encourages Paul. He gives courage to Paul. And the same message that Paul gets is the same message that Jesus has for us today in this difficult ministry context. Remember what I said. Courage, according to Scripture, Courage for believers is just a matter of understanding what resources are available to you. And so notice how Jesus offers two main resources to Paul to give him courage. The first one is his own presence. In verse 10, he says, for I am with you. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent, he says, for I am with you. I am convinced that we take that promise far too lightly in Scripture. It is so often repeated. Matter of fact, it's of the essence of the very central covenant promise that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Emmanuel, God with us. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell in your midst. That's the covenant. And obviously, it reminds us of the Great Commission. When Jesus said to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you is meant to give us daily courage. The very presence of God. It's the same promise that God gave to Joshua when he led the armies of the nation of Israel against the the, the opposition of the Canaanites in the Promised Land. He said, God said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. One of my favorite stories in scripture illustrates this principle beautifully. The story of Elisha. Elisha was a bold man of God, a prophet of God. And one day he got trapped in the city of Dothan. The king of Syria had led his very powerful armies against actually to capture Elijah particularly and to wipe out the city of Dothan and so here's Elisha and his servant in Dothan looking out the window and all the mighty armies of of the king of Syria surrounding the city and it says that his servant was terrified there was humanly speaking no hope and you remember what Elisha said to his servant he said do not be afraid same message do not be afraid For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now that would be enough if he just said that. But Elisha didn't stop there. He prayed a prayer and he said, Lord, open his spiritual eyes so he can see what you've shown me. And after he prayed that prayer, the servant looked out the window and yes, he saw the same mighty army surrounding the city. But according to the text, it says he looked at the mountains surrounding the enemy armies. And in the mountains, it says it was full of horses and chariots of fire. 
the heavenly host, the armies of heaven, were encamped around the enemies who had them surrounded. You know, I wish the Lord would do that more often. Just that little glimpse. But those armies are still surrounding the church. The heavenly host, all the powers, the resources of heaven are employed for the sake of the church in this fallen world. And if we had those those lenses to be able to see through what's physical to what's spiritual, to what is true, we would see it and we would draw courage from it. But we have the word of God assuring us that it's true. And that's what's to give us courage. He is with us. Those same angelic hosts are with us as we do the simple mundane thing of sharing the truth of scripture with our neighbor, our coworker, our family member, or whoever. Courage is understanding what resources are available to you. The second thing that Christ offers to Paul is his plan. He makes reference to the plan. He says in verse 10, No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. You see, the Lord had a mission. There were people, there were elect people chosen from before the foundation of the world all over the city of Corinth, and Christ had a plan to bring those people to himself, and his plan was to use Paul in his ministry. It's interesting that he gives Paul a special promise, a promise that you and I don't get. Because he was an apostle, he got special revelations. And the revelation he gets is that Paul was told that he would not be physically harmed. Now that must speak to what his fear was about. He must have been fearing physical harm. And certainly in other ministry contexts, Christ never gave him that promise. Matter of fact, in other ministry contexts, as he'll describe later in in 2 Corinthians, he he had been flogged, he had been beaten, he had been shipwrecked, he had been persecuted. He had suffered physically in many ways. So Christ gives him a promise. You're not going to face that kind of suffering here in Corinth. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to put a hedge around you. I'm not going to allow you to be physically harmed to encourage Paul. But what's interesting is that didn't mean that his ministry then became easy. It didn't mean that he didn't have to suffer. What it meant was he had to suffer in a different way because you'll notice as the text goes on, the Jews attack Paul legally. They try to have him imprisoned. They try to have the preaching and teaching of the gospel banned in Corinth. And you notice how God delivers Paul from that. He delivered him by an apathetic government official. That's how he delivered him. Gallio just didn't didn't want to get involved. And God has often worked through unbelieving, apathetic, or selfish government officials to protect the work of the church. History is full of those kinds of examples. But Paul needed to be reminded that not only was the Lord with him, but the Lord had a mission. The Lord was accomplishing something in the city of Corinth, and Paul was a part of that. So not only was the Lord with him, but the Lord would empower him and guide him and direct him to do what he was called to do. Paul needed to be reminded of that in order to be encouraged. Jesus' earthly ministry reflected that kind of a sense of being on a mission, that kind of confidence that the Father's plan was behind everything he did and that his times were in the Father's hand. In John 9, he says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He says that to the church today in general. As long as you're in the world, you're the light of the world. He says that to to Oakwood Presbyterian Church and and other gospel-centered churches in State College. As long as you are in the world, you are the light of the world. I have a mission for you. I have people in this city 
who belong to me. They're my people. And you are sent to them. Tell them the truth. That's why Jesus constantly said things like, my time has not yet come, or my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. It's why he, as he hung there and breathed his last on the cross, as he paid the price for all our sins, he said, it is finished. And actually, this goes back, you, under, you see that Paul understood this, That's, that, that idea that there was a mission and a plan of God that he was a part of is what led him to say to the Jewish leadership, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. That's missional language there. That's saying, I have done what I have called to do. I am no longer responsible. I was sent to tell you that Jesus is the Christ. I have told you this. I have explained it to you. I've showed it to you from the scriptures. Now your blood is on your own head. It's not on mine. I am innocent of of that. This is language that's taken from the, the 33rd chapter of Ezekiel. Remember when God said this to Ezekiel. He said, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make them their watchmen, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. That's the principle. We are like the watchman on the wall. Our only job is to tell people that judgment of God is coming. We are all sinners. We are all under his condemnation. We all deserve to be punished for eternity outside of the presence and blessing of God. But he has provided a Christ. He has provided a Messiah. He has provided a Redeemer. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Once we've told them that, our job is done. We're not responsible for how they respond. Our success is not measured by how people respond. If they refuse to listen, they are accountable. But if we refuse to tell them, then we are accountable. And so Paul is saying to the Jews in Corinth, I have told you the truth. My mission to you is complete. What's interesting is he uses the same language talking to the elders of the church in Ephesus in chapter 20. He says, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In the one case, his message was completely rejected, In terms of the Ephesian elders, the message was received. But in both cases, his ministry is successful because he completed the mission. He told them the truth. And so Paul could say at the end of his life, when he wrote to Timothy, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Now, I understand that we're not prophets and apostles. And we don't have the kind of special visions and revelation to know whether we're going to face physical suffering for the glory of God or, or legal suffering for the glory of God or financial suffering. We don't know. We don't know when our mission's done. It's very hard for us to know when the rejection of somebody, when we tell them the truth about Jesus, we don't have special revelation to say, hey, it's time for me to shake the dust off my feet and leave you behind because you've rejected the word of God. We don't know when that moment is because we're not prophets and apostles. But the underlying principle is still true, that we are not the Holy Spirit. It is not our job, it is not our mission to, to, to change hearts and change minds. That's his job. Our job is to tell the truth. And that is our mission. 
And even though missional is one of those trendy, hipster, Christian words that I get tired of hearing these days and I tend to avoid because it's been misused so much, I very much affirm the fact that if we are here, while we are here on earth, we are on a mission. And it may not be spelled out with the same specificity that Paul's mission was or Ezekiel's mission was, but we are on a mission. And I know that the essence of that mission is to tell the truth. And once we've done that, our ministry, our mission is a success. We are innocent. We have done our job. And it's up to the Lord how people respond to that message. George Whitfield said, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. We are invincible until our work on earth is done. We don't know when that is or how that's going to happen. But we know that he has a purpose for us being here. And the core of that purpose, whatever it looks like in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your marketplace, your mission is to tell the truth. Winsomely, lovingly, gently, persistently, boldly, courageously. Courage is a matter of knowing what resources are available to you. So take courage in this, because Jesus says the same thing to us as he said to Paul. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, for I have many people in this, for I have many in this city who are my people. He is always with us, and his plan is always behind us. That's all we need to know, to take courage. We need that every morning. We need that phrase on our mirror when we get up in the morning. So the first thing we see that carry us through every day is that he is with us and he has many people in this place who are his people. We are sent to tell them the truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul's example. Thank you for his faithfulness as an example to us of what faithfulness looks like in our own difficult ministry context. Lord, we are filled with fear and trembling and weakness. We do not have it within us to be bold and courageous. Father, may we be encouraged by the presence of Christ and the plan of Christ. And we wait for you to come to bring it all to completion. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.